All right, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 2, please, as we continue our study. The flesh of man wants to constantly, um, with great effort, create imbalances in our lives. The imbalances um, for Christians come when we would uh, hear the Bible taught and you can hear in these teachings that we've been doing in the book of Romans that the kind of judgment that uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees and these religious leaders and even the I hope as you meditate upon scripture, the scope of it gets so much bigger. It's not just the Jews. And then beyond that, it's not just the religion of Judaism. It goes into every single worldview or religion that seeks to make its people righteous, deserving of favor deserving of um, heavenly favor. And so when we study this, you can constantly over the period of one week, two weeks, three weeks, and then several weeks into Paul in Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3 confronting this judgment, you can hear the, a constant, well, don't judge, well, don't judge, well, don't judge. And really, that's being consistent with Scripture here. That is, the Bible um, telling us not to judge a certain way. And so the imbalance that is created is that people can be going around, f- f- Christian people saying, oh, it's not good to judge. Without any description, without any um, information on what the Bible's really saying, it just becomes this imbalance. And what fuels that imbalance is not ignorance primarily. And, And what fuels that imbalance is the flesh itself. Our flesh either will get extremely judgmental to the point of violating what we've been talking about in Romans 2, um, as it's mentioned here in verse 1, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for whatever you judge, you condemn yourselves. Uh, For you who judge practice the same things. And when we... When we read that, we can be like, wow, it's bad to judge. And that's not at all what the Bible is saying. And then we can come to this point and where we get to heavy scriptures in Ephesians and where it says these who practice these things, those people who practice these things, that is without repentance, which is a recognition mentally of how sinful it is to practice such things, not those who've ever committed adultery or who will commit adultery, because our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. 
It's those who practice adultery or fornication or murder or strife or envy or these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then we can get into that portion of scripture and go around pointing the finger at every single person who's practicing such things and violate what Matthew 7 is talking about and Romans 2 is talking about. And the other imbalance, and it's all fueled by the flesh, it's not just fueled by misunderstanding because the spirit within us that bears witness with our hearts, that bears witness with our spirit, so to speak, will always find a way to reason with truth, always find a way to discover truth. And truth is never so far as just around the corner. We still got to walk there. We still got to seek. We still got to find. We still got to ask. We still got to knock. But as we continue the book of Romans, don't think this is me going around saying, oh, judgment is bad, and we just become some liberal church, um, starting to sound like the liberal governments of the world, um, in my case, the Democratic Party in America, where they use words like discrimination, don't discriminate, um, don't, don't be binary as... Um, the infamous wicked President Obama said. Don't be binary. What, this, what they mean by that is that discriminate means to differentiate, means to say, well, this person is this and this person is that. You know, the, and as, as absurd as it may sound, this person is a male and that is evident, and this person is a female. And what the Western world is trying to advocate strongly for, um, especially America, which is very unfortunate, is that it is actually wrong to differentiate between male and female. Especially if somebody wants to identify as a female if they're a male. So stop this binary discrimination. We, equipped by God with a mind, revealed by God to us through his word, the truth. And we can judge. We can differentiate. We can discriminate. We can say, you are a male. And it is against God to try to identify as a female. And all of these different things. So don't... We don't want to be liberal. We don't, the, the idea of what Paul is saying, and there's many things, but two in the, major things in this form of judgment that he is speaking against is do not judge another human being as if you are not a sinner yourself. You who are harsh towards the murderer or the adulterer. Uh, Christ says in Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, you are guilty of these things. So we can understand righteous indignation. We can understand when somebody's angry because God too is angry with, with sin, but understand that God is perfect in his anger. He doesn't come and and, and, and in his angry is not in his anger not tender-hearted towards the sinner 
not gracious, not merciful. And the moment a sinner is broken and repentive, he receives them into salvation. And if they're saved, once they sin, into reconciliation and healing and comforts. That is what Paul's speaking of. So number one is don't judge another human being as if, as if they're more wicked than you are. And secondly, don't think for a moment, and this is the big, huge point that Paul not only makes in the book of Romans in this amazing um, courtroom argument, but don't think you can ever get to heaven apart from the salvation of the cross of Christ. Now, if you're like me, when I first got saved, I was, I didn't, I didn't know my Bible, first of all, so I started reading it and I started receiving teachings, many great teachings, but some of the teachings that I received, it seemed like there wasn't great preparation um, that they were often busy pastors and I was at Teen Challenge during this time and then there were other teachers in, 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 um, that I had experienced. And they would begin to talk about grace because that's what we're talking about, the doctrine of grace. And these Jews that Rome, Romans 2 is describing and we'll go on describing in our text today or these moralists, these people who just feel really good about their good deeds to the point where they think they're better than others and they think they're going to earn some paradise, some eternal bliss and, and eternal riches and comforts because of their good deeds. And when I would listen to the doctrines of grace and people would, you know, obviously Ephesians 1 is a huge um, scripture that we quote in, re in reference to saving faith through grace. It's, um, we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. Um, and then Galatians talking about the grace, Paul confronts Peter because Peter is still struggling, deeply struggling with a few things. One is the doctrine of grace, not being liberated by grace to the point where he doesn't care about what the Jews think. And then you have this radical man, the Apostle Paul, even having to confront and rebuke Peter to his face for entertaining that circumcision is necessary to come into the sheepfold, come into the body of Christ, have some sort of favor with God. That's addressed in Galatians 2. But I became dissatisfied with grace because, not with grace, with, with a lot of what people were teaching about grace. To me, it needed a better explanation. It needed a deeper teaching, and I started reading some books, and I, um, you, you read some of the Puritan writers, you can really get a good sense. I also read a, a book called The Prodigal God, which really helped. And I realized what I was most dissatisfied with is it seemed to me that when people would teach about the doctrines of grace, 
that in my heart started to spring up not a dissatisfaction with the, 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 the gratefulness I had about the cross, but it almost seemed like, man, because of grace, we're just to go around and, you know, be these soft men. We're to go around in laziness. It's almost like you're saved by grace, and what else is there but salvation? Well, there's a lot. And I realized something that, that, that helped me is one of the reasons I was tired of hearing about it is like we're, we're saved by grace. and Isn't it wonderful? And isn't it amazing? And isn't it... Well, it is wonderful, amazing, but can you please, preacher, teach why it's so wonderful and amazing? Why grace is so spectacular? Just don't say it's wonderful. It's like dangling, you know, your favorite food in front of you. It's like, isn't it amazing? Isn't it great? Without actually partaking of the food itself. Well, Romans 2, I say all that to uh, two things. Don't be in balance with your idea of what it means not to judge. We can discriminate. We can differentiate. We can come in and say, that's sin. Be holy and repent. We can do that. But to come in with condemnation, to come in with a lack of kindness towards the sinner, forgetting that we are sinners is very dangerous. God doesn't like when people do that. And then I, I, I gave this introduction also to say what we're talking about here, what Paul's dealing with is that the Jews or, or those moralists or those people who just think their good deeds is going to earn them favor, they don't appreciate the grace of God. They don't understand it. They don't understand the grace of God. And the reason they don't understand the grace of God, and this is the real key, by the way, in growing in grace. This is it. Is to grow in grace, not just to be saved by it, is to understand the goodness of Christ in comparison to the badness of man. The holiness of God, the holiness of Christ in comparison to my wickedness. And when we see that, we become so grateful so overwhelmingly consumed by love for Christ that grace doesn't produce laziness. It produces a Christian work ethic that, is, that would never cease in its work for Christ. Grace does not produce laziness. Real understandings of grace and real partakers of grace are the hardest workers in the Christian world for the cause of Christ. Grace is the fuel that drives us into works. And the idea that I was dissatisfied is it seemed like grace and works were opposed to each other. We're enemies of each other. And that's not at all what the Bible teaches. Grace is not the enemy of works, but grace is the fuel that gives us the strength to work for Christ, to bear fruit 
to have works. And, and one of the th- reasons Paul and the, through the Holy Spirit here is so adamantly over, almost it's nauseating if you don't really appreciate grace, as I was nauseated by so many teachings in my early Christian life. And it's nauseating, it's like we're saved by grace, we're saved by grace, well, great. Well, why do we gotta talk about it so much? Well, let me tell you why Paul's talking about it. Because they don't understand grace, they exalt themselves to the position of Christ, even to the point of not needing him, not being desperate for him. It says at the end of this chapter, in verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not the leather, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The idea there is, when we step out of this judgment of others because we don't realize that we're sinners, we're in desperate need of Christ, we begin to praise ourselves, not praise God. We must understand, church, how far we have fallen into sin as individuals, in our minds, and our hearts, so that we can receive grace and so that grace can propel us, can motivate us, fuel us to, to work for Christ, not because we're earning salvation, but because of grace, we are so appreciative and grateful for the salvation that we do not deserve. That, that is what really opened my mind. It's, grace is not the enemy of works. It is the very fuel that bears fruit. It's the very fuel that causes us to work. So with that, you look here. In verse 7, I want to back up, re-explain it. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves and their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. 
Verse 17, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you are self are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheming amongst the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has been become uncircumcision. Therefore... If an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision, that is one um, outwardly in the flesh, but it, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. It's very connected. It's definitely not light reading, and listen, we could definitely find a church in this town that would never read the Romans chapter 2, in fact, most of them, and entertain you and jump around the stage and tell you how to get rich even though I don't think it's working and we as Bible students have to understand what's going on and the reason for that introduction is don't just leave here it's like okay we're saved by grace that's great I already knew that no be amazed by it Because what grace does is it, and if you could try to understand, if we could, grace takes the eyes off of man and it puts its eyes on God. That's what grace does. That's what Paul's trying to do. And when he says in verse seven, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul, a man who does evil of the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Do not think, Paul is saying, those who do good will be saved. Those who do bad will be punished. He is being rhetorical. He is saying, if you do indeed do good, you will have immortality and glory and honor. But understand this, you must do perfect good. 
You must keep the law, and that's the context. The rest of the chapter helps us understand what he's saying in verse 7 down to verse uh, uh, 11. It's not, it's not saying, oh, yeah, those who seek good and immortality and will have glory and honor. Those who work good will have those things. But those who work bad will not have those things. He, he, because the context is, this is what it means to seek glory and immortality and good works. It means you must obey the law perfectly. You must seek good perfectly in order to have immortality and glory and honor in the next life. But those who seek bad will not have it. They'll be judged. And every, good de every bad deed will be judged. So it shouldn't cause us to read that and say, oh, well, okay, well, we better seek good. In order to have immortality, that would defeat the very purpose, the very meaning of what Paul is writing. He's saying, okay, you want to see good? Go for it. But remember, when you do it, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be absolutely perfect for you not to need Christ. You got to obey the law perfectly for you not to need Christ. And remember, if you understand that this is what it means not to be perfect, do you rob? Have you been a thief? We'll talk about that in a moment. Have you committed adultery? Have you murdered? It's this commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, remember what Jesus Christ said of what adultery is? And you remember over the last two weeks, we proved to ourselves, or I guess I proved to you, that we agree with the assessment of adultery by Jesus Christ, don't we? We do agree that adultery is not just physical. It begins in the heart. Lusting. So that's what he's saying in verses 7 through 11. And it goes on to prove it in verse 12. For as many have sinned without the law will perish without law. Now don't think that he's saying they're going to perish. <laughs> like perish is a neutral word. So those Gentiles, Paul's saying, um, that, that Romans 1 is describing, that Romans 1 has talked about, they don't have the law, but they still will perish. They still have no excuse. And as many as have sinned, there in verse 12, in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law are justified. So, <laughs> I told you last week about that staff member and Teen Challenge, just the goofiest, dim-winded guy I've ever met. Well, that's not true. I've met some more dim-winded along the way. But he was a good guy. He loved the Lord. And he read that portion of Scripture, and he looks at me and goes, what does that mean? <laughs> Understand that Paul, 
If there, if there was a Jewish person even today to read this, it would pique their attention because the word law is mentioned so many times. I mean, it'd be like, I don't know, take your favorite food. It's like if they threw that word in there, you know, if they, a, a, a steak from a Ruth Chris, you know, it's like, boy, that sounds good. I mean, Paul is like law, 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 law to the Jewish mind. It's like, okay, I'm interested. He's talking about, you know, honey. He's talking about sugar. He's talking about, for those of you who still love Ugali, he's talking about Ugali. To a Jewish mind, it's like disinterested. But what he's saying about it, the reason he's mentioning it so much is because they're trying to justify themselves by the law. Those who don't have law, they're going to perish without the law. Understand that even those who are not Jewish or who have not had the revelation of God's commandments, which is the law, they're still going to perish. How much more the idea, those of you who have the law, you, you have the law, okay, then judge yourself by the law. That's what he's saying. He says, and let me read it again. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You religious person, he's saying, you Jewish person. It's not enough just to hear it. If you want to be justified, you must do it. He's, 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 he's chiding them. Uh, if you don't understand that word, he's egging them on. Oh, you can do the law? Well, go do it. You're a great Christian person. or You're a great religious person. Well, go practice the very law that you preach. It's not just the hearers. You must do the law and you must do it perfectly because even one offense against the law must be punished. That's what he's doing. I guess there is a heavenly chiding going on, which, be careful, it can go into carnality real quick if you're not the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the doers of the law will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these although not having the law are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts excusing or excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Paul goes back to the Gentiles. He starts, he's like, those who do not have the law will not be Judged by the law, but they're still going to be perish. They're still going to perish. You'll be judged by the law, because not the hearers of the law are justified, but the doers of the law are justified. Then he comes back to the Gentiles, and this is the point. He's saying, but even those who don't have the law, the the reason why God's justified in their perishing is because they have a conscience, and that is what we spent almost two weeks on. Romans 1 describing, they have a conscience inside of them because they're created in the image of God. And when they violate that conscience, if they choose instead 
to look for a savior, but rather they choose to suppress that truth in unrighteousness because they choose sin, then God will judge the secrets of men according to his gospel, according to what he knows is righteous and judgment. And it's not just a mystery. When the Bible says it's a mystery, it doesn't mean it can't be known. It means it must be sought after to be known. And we know that it is the image of God in people, that moral consciousness, some call it the God consciousness. God will be justified in judging them according to that, even those who didn't have the law. He will be justified in that. But, he says, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. Okay. And you know his will and you approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. He's saying, okay, you know the law. Not only do that, you are prideful enough to actually teach it without letting it examine yourself. So you teach it. You're a religious leader. You go on and you say, don't do this, don't do this, this is the law, this is what makes you righteous. You gotta, you gotta give. You notice when we take offering, I never have ever said once in the history of our church, give to make yourself righteous. Oftentimes I'll quote, give because you love God, not grudgingly, but because you love him we give. And he told us to do it and we trust him. Or any other uh, example we could give here. We do it out of love. We don't do it to be righteous or justified. That's what they're doing. It says, you're an instructor. You're a teacher. You teach the foolish. You are a teacher of babes. Having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Well, that form of knowledge has not carried over into a proper examination of yourself. And this is where it all comes home in understanding that hard to read verses seven all the way down to this portion of scripture. This is where he closes the sermon. He ties the knot. He says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, that means you hate idols, do you rob temples? You make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you? We know that they do commit adultery, do you remember them? When those religious leaders brought that prostitute before Jesus, or that woman, not the prostitute, excuse me, that woman caught in adultery, makes you wonder where the man was. But she was caught. I guess they left the guy there who also should have faced judgment. They threw her down before Jesus Christ and say, uh, she committed adultery. We caught her in the very 
act. What a humiliating thing. And so Jesus, they want her stoned because they know that there is a legal right, a judicial law that states if this happens, she can be stoned. So if Jesus doesn't partake or approve of the stoning, he'll be in trouble. They're trying to catch him again. And if uh, he does stone her, I mean, it's not a good look for the new upcoming rabbi to be throwing rocks at a woman's head in the streets. So also, he's going to face that kind of crowd. Jesus, never caught by these man's devices and snares, begins writing on the ground. Many speculate that he begins writing the names of the women that these people had committed adultery with, whether physically or mentally, which I actually believe because of their laws that some of the writing was, I personally believe, is what these men were lusting after in their hearts, the women they were pursuing in their hearts. And he began writing the names of them like, gosh, how does he know that? I got to... I got to leave this place. And they all leave. And he looks at the woman. Where are your accusers? And there's none. He says, therefore, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. You, you who teach not to commit adultery, you've done it. Either physically or mentally. You who tell people not to steal. Do you steal? These religious leaders, guys. They, in their conscience and according to the law, would have been convicted at first when they entered the temple and began the system that was in process and progress of, uh, um, uh, uh, of what was stealing there. These, 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 these Pharisees were stealing people's money and justifying it in their own minds. These poor people would come with their offerings and be like, yeah, I guess in the law you can bring a pigeon but we have an anointed lamb or anointed bull or, or a goat. And if uh, you buy ours, you'll, you'll have favor with God. Does that sound familiar? And so they do it. And they take out their life savings and all these different things. They're stealing from the people. Also, there was a Forex Exchange Bureau in the temple. And when they wouldn't receive Roman coins, but that's what the currency that most people could use, so they had to exchange it because Roman money was dirty. They had to get Jewish denarii and all that. And, and so they would have to exchange it. And they had obscene exchange rates. They were treating the temple like a bank. They were becoming very wealthy. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? They're robbing this, the temple. Putting money before God. You make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through the breaking of it? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's an interesting statement. The Gentiles, you are responsible for blaspheming the name of God amongst the Gentiles. Why? 
Because these people were not offering this grace to them, which is the same grace that these Pharisees, religious leaders, moral people needed. So it's blasphemed. When we don't extend grace, and the worship team can come up, when we don't extend grace to people, we are blaspheming the name of God amongst those people. Now, we are not condoning sin, but we are blaspheming the name of God amongst those people. When we extend, and the reason we do that because God is extending grace to the world. You may leave here like, well, I'm, I'm glad to know the scripture, but what do I apply to my life that the scripture has? Do you have bitterness have you been blaming people? Have you been branding different people? Which has caused blindness? The way you apply this to your life is two things. Is in light of this amazing goodness of God that we've been talking about now for three weeks. We have an amazing love for him. Our, our love for Christ is growing and our love for each other is growing. Many of us have been hurt deeply and, 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 and been hurt legitimately. We've, we've been hurt. We've had family members hurt us, friends, different people. And you may not even realize that root of bitterness that has been in you. The reason why the, the name of God was blasphemed by the Jews amongst the Gentiles is because these Jews would not extend grace and forgiveness to the Gentile people who, yes, were a disgusting, wicked people. I've had people hurt me deeply. And it almost never ends in my life because I'm always around meeting different people and, and, and I expose myself. We open up our homes. We open up our hearts. We open up our minds. And, and I've had people hurt me, say things to me. I've had people lie about me. Even recently, and I, I'm going through something, somebody bold-faced lie about something and if there's not grace in my heart because I know I've been forgiven of my sins and if I'm not overwhelmed by the goodness of God when I get hurt I'm just going to want to hurt back I'm going to want to be unkind unmerciful unforgiving 
But when I look to Christ and I say, look at the grace he has poured out upon me, a sinner, wicked and unclean, and he fills me with that goodness only when he fills me with that goodness can I pour out that goodness to humanity, to people who have hurt me. If you're bitter, it's time for it to come to an end. It's time for Romans 2 and Romans 1 and the Spirit of God to wash you clean of that bitterness. I don't even care. If, if it means you have to call that person and say, I forgive you for your sin, then do it. But make sure you're always extending kind thoughts which is good prayers and kind actions, which is reflective of God, how God's treated you. That's how you apply this scripture, to be amazed by his grace, so filled with his goodness that you are so filled by it that you can give it to others. That's how you do it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for in a very powerful, articulate way, you're explaining to us what your grace is and how good you've been to us. So grateful to you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege that we can grow in love because of grace. We can grow in love because of your goodness for you and for others. And let that love reflect as we receive today's offering, as we worship you in that offering. Grant us wisdom in the administration of these gifts that we may expand your kingdom and proclaim your goodness and your greatness to men. And we ask for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.